on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Part of trauma returns us to being expressive beings and experiential beings. It's some experience that has components to it on the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical level that um, didn't get moved and it becomes stuck. It's like a kink in the hose. And that's meant to be a coping strategy. Usually what you see is like a short-term coping strategy that becomes a long-term state or trait because we don't have ways to move that stuff. I mean, other cultures have, for example, just parts of how they exist culturally that helps to move that stuff. You have lots of intense music and celebration and parade and dance and sensuality and um, ceremony and ritual and things like that that naturally move energy for people and get, get you all the way engaged. Um, but we, we have a lot of that missing here. And so it means that we have to come up with creative ways to, to move it. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. In today's episode, I speak with Michael Gay, a therapist in private practice based in Boulder, Colorado. Michael has worked in the field of counseling for the last 14 years as a guide, therapist, and trainer. He specializes in work with depression, trauma, PTSD, grief, and families. I first encountered Michael at the Sacred Sons Convergence last October in San Diego, California where he led the men in a group process of healing through attunement to stuck energy, ultimately unlocking the deep alchemy of transformation. In our conversation today, we touch upon his own adolescence and grappling with the big questions of life, how he encountered the mythopoetic men's movement and his time with Robert Bly, how emotions like anger can be powerful tools for healing, and why a culture of safety is fundamentally about coming back into relationship with ourselves and with each other. Also, a huge shout-out of gratitude to my Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to join them, check out my website, themythicmasculine.com, and click Become a Supporter. Thank you. Michael Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. It's great to be here. Mm. I'd like to start my show with a invitation to the guests to offer a glimpse of where they are in their world, you know, whether that's physically, spiritually, emotionally, mythically, uh, just to, so the listener can, can tune in to where the guest is at. Yeah, I'll give you an insight on two levels. I'm uh, in a small mountain town in Colorado called Lyons on the way between Boulder and Rocky Mountain National Park. It's a sunny spring day. It's one of the eight weeks of the year that's actually green in Colorado. And so everything is beautiful and shining. Hummingbirds are all about. And the sky is blue and vibrant. I'd say on the more spiritual, mythic level, I'm in a transitional period in my life, been hearing a uh, a call to retreat and just take in and read and 
kind of be inside and go into sort of a sealed container and work a lot less and and just listen and learn and follow right now. I don't know what the, is on the other side of that, but I'm I'm being asked to kind of just go in and not get to know what's on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. Well, thanks for taking the time to, to converse here on the eve of the threshold, it feels. I'd love to begin to offer the, the listener a little bit of how we first came into contact, which uh, was actually at the uh, Sacred Sons Convergence last uh, October in San Diego. And I'd love to describe just the scene, I feel like, when I first you know, um, witnessed you, you know, in action, so to speak. And it was um, on day, it might have been day, day two even. I mean, every day was so packed down there. Um, actually, to sketch it for the listener that, yeah, it was a, a gathering of about 200 men, I believe, um, over two weekends, back to back, that was really calling together men in the region, but also brought more broadly to t- tune into the Sacred Sons you know, world and to come together in a ritual fashion to do healing work, to connect, to play, dance, you know, all the rest. And it was a, yeah, a really beautiful time for me. Um, I was invited to just connect, you know, with the group, uh, Jason and O'Bara and Adam had, had extended the invitation. And so on the one hand, I was coming out of, out of a personal interest, certainly, and also just to um, see if I could offer something from, you know, tapping into the wider field of this conversation and, and observing what I could and sharing, which then became an essay, which I wrote um, called Sacred Sons and the Rise of the Embodied Masculine. And a big piece of that actually was uh, for me in the, I believe it was, again, it was day two when you were one of the leaders, I believe, that stepped in to the circle and to set the stage. It felt very cinematic, actually, you know, maybe because I'm also a filmmaker, but, you know, all of the men gathered in the main hall, uh, sort of, you know, the buzz of anticipation, sensing that, you know, some deep work was going to be done. At the same time, you know, maybe maybe some, of course, had done this kind of work before, so new, but maybe many others didn't. And uh, you stepped in and, and really offered a really beautiful frame for what was the work that was about to begin. And uh, I, for me, it was the ability to, to tap into the sense that, you know, men, I'll let you maybe speak to you in a moment, but what I remember was the sense that, you know, men have these wounds that, that need healing and, in fact, uh, can't be healed alone. That uh, you know, no, you know, no matter how heroic you know a man can be, that actually there are certain wounds that that just can't be healed alone, and we need each other. And you offered, I believe, such a sort of tender uh, but potent rally, you know, rally cry in that moment to step into this work. And uh, and yeah, I was felt touched by it, and, and really appreciative of you and what you were carrying. And 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 what I saw is a very different frequency, you know, in, in than I'd seen in the other leaders that were there. And all they all have their beautiful medicine, but you had a very particular kind, and. Um, and maybe I'd just love to start there a little bit of, uh, yeah, like that moment for you and, and really what felt, it felt to me like you were really doing what was your soul's calling. Yeah, I'd say you're right. That is that and that in Sacred Sons has been a real gift in that way. I was a wilderness therapy guide for years and years and I worked in a lot of context, but this particular type of group work is definitely a calling and it's something that feels really underrepresented in the culture in general and in healing work. Um, it's exactly as you say, that life is intense and there's not a home for that intensity in our culture and in our way of life and definitely as the masculine. And so our role is to create space for that intensity to move because when it doesn't get a chance to, uh, it comes out sideways in people's lives or um, can create an immense amount of suffering and stuckness. And so we're coming together in sort of 
very intentional, nearly ritual ways uh, to move these kinds of things. And it does feel like a, a sacred act mm-hmm. to, uh, to be together that way. I'd love to jump back even to your, your youth now. And, you know, what was it that, that stirred you towards this path? Um, on onto healing work um, in your own story and and you know maybe what wasn't in the culture for you sure gosh so i was uh raised in georgia in the conservative christian south and there was just something that happens i think now where i am looking back it makes me really aware that it's true something wakes up often for people during adolescence a, a certain expanded dimension of the soul and the self comes online and, it, and that expansion is really meant to be tended by the culture. But where I was growing up, there weren't a lot of um, ways that we were meeting that. And so I was really alone and adrift mm-hmm. in these intense and consuming questions that had me feel very separate from everything that was going on. And um, so it, 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 it was sort of a, an intense onset of depression and separation and anger and confusion and spiritual longing that I had no... Um, no understanding of where it was coming from. It was like going through puberty. If your body just started changing, all of a sudden you had no idea why. Um, and it felt that way to me. It was something inside was was very transformative trying to mobilize, and I had no idea what was going on. It was incredibly torturous and scary and a lonely experience. And so I think that set my path onto what what's going on, how come I'm feeling this way, how come I'm thinking these things. Um, what's missing. Would you share to what, do you remember some of the questions actually that were present with you during that time? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was like, <laughs> I grew up in the, the Christian worldview I grew up with was very simple and simplified. It was like, God made the world this way. And that's what you do. You just bring people to Jesus and it's all groovy and that's all you do. And you know, and then the world's good. <laughs> Everything goes away when and all the problems dissolve. And that's a very simple way of understanding life to say the least. And the questions were something like, what are we? Why are we here? Why does God not talk to us directly? Uh, you know, I've never met anyone that feel, felt like they really did. Some intuitions, how come we do all of these things uh, in the name of our spiritual callings? And how come people would commit the worst atrocities in human history in the name of Jesus and do extraordinary acts of kindness and service in the name of the same Jesus? Why wouldn't God not intervene and write someone's path and truly talk and communicate. Why Why did such atrocity keep happening? Um, how come there wasn't a real um, feedback loop and communication there? Why, why aren't we more troubled as a culture on like what we are and who we are and where we're from? We're just kind of doing the things. And it was, it was absolutely baffling to me that we, that wasn't a bigger part of the culture. Just like, what are we? Where are we from? What's this about? Who's had communication with these things? Who who understands some bigger perspective um, in a visceral, experiential way, not just in a, because we heard this, you know, it's been passed down over the years. So those things really troubled me. And how come people didn't really look at the hypocrisy or the incongruences with their belief systems and how they chose to live? And, you know, religion seemed more like a social, cultural club than a, an actual act of creation. Well, deep questions for a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 15, 16-year-old. Wow. And so what lay on the other side of then the wondering? Did you have to 
depart from what you knew. You know, very clearly for me, you know, this triggers a, a sense of what I understand to be, you know, the rite of passage, which typically kicks in then around, right. you know, for an intact culture, they understand that that is a very kind of fertile uh, moment for youth. Mm-hmm. And that's why they swoop in and they say, hey, you know, let's um, guide you on a journey. But like you're saying, I think that that wasn't there for you. Um, and maybe you had to, like many, cobble your own, you know, threshold rite of passage uh, for yourself. A hundred percent. I I mean, I, I barely passed high school. I don't know how, like, I, it was so consuming that I really couldn't read. Like, I couldn't focus. I couldn't, um, I, I would try to read and my brain literally wouldn't process the information. I went to one of the top schools in the South for high school and I could function at a very high level, but it was, it was so consuming um, that it was I was just panicked all the time and lost. And so I took some time off before going to college, tried to hike on the Appalachian Trail, um, tried to turn college into an experience of exploring world and worldview, but that was just not the college isn't made for soul work. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and that kept getting reflected back to me over and over again. It was very hard to fit in that context. It's a different way of taking in information and digesting it and integrating it. And it's not a very living and alive process, um, unless you have a lot of other stuff that's stable in your life. And so I, I, that was the only option I had. I didn't, I wasn't, um, you know, determined enough or broken enough. I'm not sure which one to say, I can't do the college thing and just try to figure it out. I had no idea what to do. Um, but college was a great way for me to meet a lot of new people and be exposed to different ideas and different, you know, Robert Bly talks about how books have become our mentors now. And, um, it was that case for me that, and it, but it was such a bind that it was hard to read. So it was an in-between just sort of a suffering place. Yeah, I spent lots of time alone in the woods, lots of time uh, praying and trying new experiences and uh, seeking things out without a lot of uh, success for a while, for a couple of years. Mm. I understand then at some point you found men's work. Uh, and, and again, I'm curious what came first. Was it a, a sense of your vocation within um, healing work or counseling or did that come after encountering men's work or how was that? It's, it's taken an evolution. I think that I, I was drawn to psychology from the beginning because it was very, it was the most personal path out there. Spirituality felt very, to some degree, philosophical, and you had to really buy into the, the assumptions of the framework to participate. And psychology is very much about like my experience, my identity. How do I get to this place? And, um, it was almost my last year of college. It's a very, intense story, but it set the scene for everything else. So I might as well tell it. Yeah, please. Um, I met another young man at my college. I was going to Warren Wilson college in Asheville, North Carolina area. And he, um, also seemed to be struggling with the same kinds of questions. And he was like, listen, man, you got to read Iron John. You got to read Iron John. I'd never heard of that before. And so I started reading this book and, um, through his own struggles while in the middle of reading the book, he actually uh, took his own life at Mm. college and um, it was a devastating loss. One of the first people I'd met that really had the same kind of burning and struggling questions. And his family did an amazing thing. They held a four day uh, sacred fire ceremony to honor him where all of his friends and family came. And I was reading, I was finishing Iron John at, at the fire 
And an older man saw me reading it and was just like, hey, if you like Robert Bly, you should come to this conference in Mentone, Alabama. It's every fall, just a weekend. And uh, other guys like Robert Moore and Maldoma Somay and John Lee uh, will be there, and you should give it a shot. You should come. And so the fall of 2005, I came to my first men's conference with Robert Bly and, and, um, in Mentone, Alabama. And so that was very much a catalyst uh, starting there, introduced to poetry, introduced to myth, introduced to um, thinking and feeling this way, into this sort of a mythic way of being and thinking. And um, so that was the introduction. So they were kind of being fused. I was already on an undergrad track for psychology, um, but the men's conference really picked up the mythic side of thing that I could not find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Wow. The chain of events, you yeah. know, it's one of those things where looking back, you know, it seems orchestrated. It does. You know, but I don't know if the mystery is even deeper than that. Um, you know, I remember at that age, I remember things, reading things like in Joseph Campbell, like looking back over your life and it looking orchestrated and Robert Bly mentioning things in Iron John that don't come on until you're 35 or 45. And I was just like, screw this. You know, like I'm burning with these questions <laughs> now. Like, how do we get there? Like, it doesn't seem like it's orchestrated. It just seems like a big ball of chaos. This sucks. Like, what's the way? Looking back, it is, it is that way. But man, it was... There was a lot of unmet urgency pretty much everywhere. And that was a universal theme. Even the places that were nourishing, there was an unmet urgency. And uh, I still stand by that. Mm. What was the encounter then, like going to the conference, you know, seeing these guys, you know, in a previous interview, I think it was Martin Shaw who called them the, like the three-headed hydra of men's work was, you know, Hillman, Bly, and and Mead. And you were, you were right there. Um, and I'm curious, yeah, how was that encounter? Was it, I mean, Martin also said this idea that it was the wilderness years, you know, within this mythopoetic <laughs> movement. And so, you know, I'm curious what it was like to enter into that time. I mean, you wouldn't have known, uh, certainly, I think then, but for you, it was, if it was all brand new. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what was it like to encounter, you know, them in that moment? I mean, for me, the, on the positive side, it was, it was absolute rapture. I'd never met anyone that had command of a room that way, command of material, who seemed to be speaking with authority from some other place that was palpable. Um, mm. with a this is Bly? Bly, yeah, and, yeah. and Robert Moore, uh, with a fluency uh, in this world that I'd never experienced. It was like an integrated human. It caused me, it was like, this is what's possible. You know, a big part of that burning question was, I feel like human potential is much more than I've seen. My potential is much more than I've seen. How do I get from here to there? How does it unlock? I feel like I do need mentorship and teachers. And this was the first embodiment of that that I'd ever seen. And so it, it was very deeply, uh, yes, you're right, this is possible, and these people have walked these roads, you best pay attention. Um, I also think that there was a certain degree of mismatch between where we were. Robert was very much at the tail end, Robert Moore and Bly were at the tail end of their teaching careers. They were they were getting up in age, they were you know nearly 80, um, uh, Robert was, and starting to forget things a little bit and was much more in like a spiritual phase in his life, reading ecstatic poets and really looking into the beyond. Uh, it's a much different Robert Bly than existed in, in the nineties uh, with these really fiery conferences and really intense and embodied present confrontational ways that I think I would have also liked. Um, and so, I, you know, the conference wasn't as embodied as it maybe used to be. We didn't dance. We didn't move that much. We sang a little bit, and then we listened to a lot of ideas. Um, and mm-hmm. so looking back, 
uh, he had transformed in his life stage. So the energy he brought was different. But I mean, it was, I got into, I'd never read poetry like I did after hearing him. I'd never heard someone read poetry to me and break it down. There's something about how deeply he understood the poems that came through as he read it. And I wouldn't have got it other ways, just in minor tones, inflections. And so it was a complete, uh, I mean, rapture was the only word I could, like, everything's different now. (laughs) Everything's different now. Wow. Yeah. Hearing you say that, um, you know, my first encounter with someone who who reads poetry, I believe, like what you're saying, is actually Stephen Jenkinson, who mm, yeah. I know you're familiar with, and I've studied now with a number of years. And he himself spent some time with with Robert Bly as well. And uh, I wouldn't have known I wouldn't know what you're talking about unless again I had been in the presence of Steve doing something like that, where you know he'll read a like three words, and that could be an hour long you know, unpacking a wild ride into what those three words mean. And, and it's just, you're right, it's it's total rapture. And poetry never is the same to me now. You know, I just can't, I can't just read it off a page anymore because now it leaps off or it wants to leap off. And I'm reminded also what um, Martin said in this other other interview too, about how men typically need to see something modeled in order to know that it's possible. You know, and I hear that in what you're saying as well, that suddenly it was like, oh, this is possible. Um, and yet... And yet, it feels like you're right that there's there was still something missing from, oh, I found it, you know that that maybe asked you to continue on your journey. And I'm curious what that, you know, still unmet longing was. Yeah, I think there was a uh, a desire to have my own living relationship with the place where that understanding could be formed, and that relationship could be formed. And I think I was taught to try to understand things and to like wrap my mind around it instead of participate. And uh, so the early years were very much, I was still trying to understand. And I'm not, I'm not as brilliant as they are, you know. Um, and so I think that I, I maybe didn't try as hard to understand because I didn't think I could get there. But the important part for me was participation. How do I participate in a living dialogue with these, these parts of life? And so that was something that continued to burn in me and um, and had to wake up through doing a lot of my own work of just leading other people in the wilderness therapy context and really being with people in their healing journeys and really being with people in their pain. And to some degree, I do think that that's part of the, um, you know, Robert, both Roberts were very great, brilliant understanders, and their their power with the Logos definitely opened a lot of doors for people. But I didn't see them as much really being with people and things and having... Um, like a more ceremonial and ritual presence. And I think that's, I was really drawn to that. I'm really drawn to the ways that the non-cognitive parts of life move us through experience and connect us to something bigger and infuse life with meaning and, and bring healing or resolution or connection. And so I think I was on search of the ritual or mythic or ceremonial ways of, uh, of doing that same kind of work, but less through uh, understanding and laying out information, creating experiences for people that connected them to those places and to each other. Um, so that that was my road after that. Mm. And is that when you began uh, wilderness therapy and, and AKA like leading rites of passage for, yeah. but in, within a particular healing context, you know, as it opposed was. to rite of passage through a stage of life. Totally. Is, that, is that, is that true? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, 
it wasn't explicit, explicitly rite of passage. I was working for wilderness therapy programs, which was, um, you know, these guys might call them, uh, failed initiations or something like they're the kids who got super addicted to drugs and alcohol or who had very severe debilitating depression or intense social anxiety and they just wouldn't go to school, um, or, uh, struggles with eating. Um, and, and so they would come out to the woods for eight to 15 weeks and we would live nomadically and do really intensive group work together. And I think it was that context that started to wake up a more embodied living visceral experiential connection to this stuff. So 200 days a year, I lived outside in a small group of people sleeping under tarps, cooking on fires, bow drilling the fire and really deeply being with each other. It wasn't like outward bound where it's about like the trip and having fun and, you know, having connection. Uh, it was intentionally about like, who are you? What's going on with you? What's your background? How do you communicate? Um, what's the stuff that you're still carrying around? What are your wounds? Um, so that was a normal part of the culture. Hmm. Wow. Just hearing that. What did you learn about yourself being outside that much? Uh, and two, what did you learn about attuning to, I mean, maybe I'd broadly just say the wild. Um, it's something I've, I've said before, but concisely living in a group of humans in the wild makes us live. I think how we're designed to live from an evolutionary perspective. You know, we, we evolved that way and culture has taken us so far away from living that way. And so there's an immense amount of sanity and health that comes back when we start living that way again. Um, that's not to idealize it. I think there's a lot of problems and ways it can go wrong, but um, the ways that it makes people connect with each other, the ways that it puts health back online. I mean, I can approach it from a mythic level, spiritual level, or a psychological, biological level. I'm, you know, it it makes people more vibrant, and and there's a number of ways I could articulate how, but it just puts people back into alignment with uh, how they're meant to engage with each other and in something bigger. You made me think of what seems to be an approach to, you know, healing within a culture that typically looks to just the individual, you know, as the source of the the malady or the illness or, or the addiction, whatever it is, um, rather than look to the wider context. And, you know, there's something I think tr deeply true that no matter how much healing work an individual can do, if they're still within the exact same conditions with which, you know, they, they live or, or the culture at large is within a particular, I'll just say it, you know, insane mania um, that most live in, then it's, it's deeply, uh, troubling that you know the individual is taught is told well you got to heal but the conditions themselves aren't looked at and they don't change and i think that that in itself is kind of a yeah a maddening arrangement you know when when so many don't even have the tools or the ability to look even to see their context differently and maybe that's the case for men too you know i think men are often told to yeah like do the healing to be more vulnerable to you know do all these things that but then again the conditions are not actually there to support that and the last thing i'll say is i'm just thinking of you know this uh mantra that's typically spoken about how men yeah you know need to talk about their feelings more they need to be more vulnerable and yet if i look at almost the majority of coverage of any you know quote men's work or men's groups you know whether in the new york times i'm thinking of the mankind project article or others there's actually a, um, a kind of a undercurrent of ridicule that typically uh comes along with it because 
it's almost like your culture is like, man, you got to be more vulnerable. But actually, when you are vulnerable, we can't really take it actually, because it's kind of weird. And we don't know what to do with it. So we'll kind of subtly ridicule you. And, you know, so men are in this total bind of like, where, where to go to actually do that healing work. And I think that's why for me, uh, you know, coming to places like Sacred Sons or things like that, where, you know, they need to almost be in this enclave, not so much to keep it secret, but just to keep a, a, a space where, yeah, where they can escape that, all of the subtle ways in which, you know, men are judged or, or told to be different, you know, than, than they are. And maybe the wilderness is also a place where they can just, you know, be as they are and, and sort of unfold um, themselves within the context of, you know, a guide or a mentor, as you seem to have played many times. I, it's weird. We, we've created this situation where we have to seek these sort of constructed enclaves where we can experience what health is like. Um, and because it's like you say, we go back to the society, we're relational beings. It, you can't maintain health as a relational being in a place where others aren't doing it also. Um, and so it's a hard thing. What do you do if you depend on your culture to keep you healthy? Uh, but the cult, you can't exactly control that. So you have to create subcultures. And so I think that's a big piece of, of what we're trying to do with Sacred Sons is create subcultures of, of health and connectivity. And one thing that I like that Sacred Sons is doing that I think the original men's movement didn't do is to get people meeting regularly in the communities where they're from or at least just regularly instead of just this one awesome you know, mountaintop experience and then back into the same old, same old. Um, it's got to get traction and it's got to be consistent and we've got, we have to create, truly create a new culture. So that's what I like that Sacred Sons is doing for sure. Now, had you encountered Mankind Project at all during this time as well? I didn't encounter Mankind Project until much later. It was probably 2015. Okay. Uh, when I did my, I did a new warrior training with them and, and went through that. And so I, I, I'd heard about it, but I'd never dove in. So I did that for a little bit and tried to be a part of an I group for a little while. And, um, yeah, so I got introduced in 2015. And I'm curious then what, what, again, what you hearing a bit, what you said too, I know, cause I have myself as well. I went through the weekend. Um, I didn't end up joining an I group, which is their weekly, you know, off invitation for different reasons. You know, I also had a more of a local group that I was connecting with. And I'm curious, again, not as a, I don't know, critique necessarily of Mankind Project. I think they've done incredible work. But what was it, again, that you found maybe wasn't there that maybe is this wider cultural context? Uh, the Mankind Project experience, at least for me, the thing about it's one of those things that varies probably community to community, depending on your leaders. The, the quality, just like the school system, you have great teachers in some parts of the state and others, you know, not as much in um, – I really felt like they built their organization based on a couple of personalities and maybe powerful experiences that they had been through and hoped that if they made a template from that, that other people would have the same type of awesome experience they did. And and it was enough. It, it would provide it enough to people to keep coming back and doing it. And it is good. But when I went through it, I guess I had, it, it, it felt a little hollow and incomplete and, um, I just didn't feel met, and I'll own that personally, but uh, I felt like they were trying to recreate something from the past, and uh, and it, it wasn't like a real attunement to the people that were coming in and like their needs and the process. And so um, it seems like they're trying to do it. They're trying to get people to take it back to their communities and be involved, 
but they rely really heavily on structures and um, kind of particular ways of doing things. And, you know, that's a tool. Like it's not, it's a tool. It's a helpful one at some point, And then at some point it's become going to become a hindrance and a limitation. So maybe, maybe they just hadn't transcended some of the limitations, you know, once they got to that point of the tool. Hmm. Well, this brings me then to uh, something I experienced at Sacred Sons, which I did feel was somewhat different actually than I'd experienced in particular around this carpet work, mm-hmm. as sometimes it's known, yeah. where, um, you know, in the Mankind Project, I mean, I know that they uh, ask not things not to be spoken, you know, widely, and I'm, I'm totally fine with that, just to say that there is some sort of emotional, um, you know, psychodrama, often process work that happens within that space. And with Sacred Sons, what I found was so different um, was that there was a real focus uh, and an intention to the, a degree of subtlety of like subtle energetics that didn't actually have much story at all. And, and like almost none, it was literally, yeah. I felt within that healing process, you know, the, the leader would basically say, where's the energy? And you now let's follow the energy, you know, give it sound, give it movement. And then for where that would go, you know, was incredible. And I, I felt like there was a real thread that was living there, um, a sort of dynamic, um, I don't know, a dynamic attentiveness to that energy. And I understand, again, it was, uh, you've brought that thread, or at least you, you were carrying a lot of that into the work. And I'd love to hear, yeah, how you came to that understanding, what, maybe what I understand it to be somatic, like a deep somatic um, skill set, uh, and why that became apparent to you, and like who was it that became you know, your, your leaders or mentors in that? Yeah, for sure. I, I am guilty of ascribing to the tyranny of the intellect um, so much in the healing profession, even just calling things mental health. Um, I really, my paradigm is different. I think it's more like spiritual, emotional health and that the mind follows those things. I think that those parts of us are actually much more powerful. Um, they don't always have to be, but that it's even mental health is misleading. Um, I'll give maybe a little practical context um, for those people who want like the science side of things, um, you, most things people are stuck with trauma, for example, are stored in parts of the brain that can't be accessed by language very easily. So that means you have to have non-cognitive, non-verbal approaches to working with it. And almost all we do in the, it, it definitely in psychology is talk and it's powerful. Storytelling is powerful. Expression is powerful, but words are limited in how much energy they can move. So the goal is to move the energy. That's the main goal. If we can find a way to make words carry the energy, good. If words can't carry the energy, there's other ways. And so part of that group work is letting the energy move in ways that don't necessarily have to have words. And and I think that, that doing it in group is absolutely essential. I don't think they can come out unless it's group oftentimes. You said something really interesting, and I just want to make sure you know, listener really hears it. Is that, um, well, one, why is it that trauma needs to move, like, or even you know, because I'm drawing upon my limited experience reading people like Peter Levine, and uh, uh, touching upon my understanding, which is that, um, you know, very broadly saying that trauma is essentially stuck stuck energy that wasn't able to complete. Like uh, if you think of a, a deer, you know, say getting traumatized by a lion or something and, and escaping, often at the end of it, you know, they'll shake it out 
and then suddenly, you know, hop off and seem pretty good. You know, whereas humans seem to hold on to that energy and then it gets stuck. And then it, uh, I think you might've used the uh, metaphor of, it's like almost like a stone in a river that suddenly now the water of the, the free flow of that energy of the being has to now divert around the stone and causing all sorts of problems that, um, like you say now, unless it finds a way to move, the uh, language or the talking about it can't actually, or often isn't enough to actually move it. And so no matter how much, you know, storytelling, how much talking, you know, you just can't reach those places. And so I want to touch on that again and just really highlight that because I do think that's such a key point um, that a lot of men also maybe need to really receive maybe needs not quite the right word but for me that was revelatory as well that this idea that oh wow I can't actually talk my way out of this it has to be accessed differently yeah it's not about awareness or understanding it's it reminds us that we are beings that must express and we must experience you don't just get to be aware and understand that it, that part of trauma returns us to being expressive beings and experiential beings. And so, yeah, that's a great way to say it. It's some experience that has components to it on the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical level that um, didn't get moved and it becomes stuck. It's like a kink in the hose. And that's meant to be a coping strategy. Usually what you see is like a short-term coping strategy that becomes a long-term state or trait. And that's the way that Gabor Mate would describe it in, in addiction or in ADD or, or whatever things are like that. that. That's part of what we do is what's meant to be short-term coping becomes a long-term state or trait because we don't have ways to move that stuff. I mean, other cultures have, for example, just parts of how they exist culturally that helps to move that stuff. You have Lots of intense music and celebration and parade and dance and sensuality and um, ceremony and ritual and things like that that naturally move energy for people and get get you all the way engaged. Um, but we, we have a lot of that missing here. And so it means that we have to come up with creative ways to, to move it. Yeah, and I want to say actually, you know, even hearing you say that, how heavily judged that kind of expression is actually, right, in this culture where – you know, for example, I, had a, I have a friend who was um, kind of releasing emotional charge, anger around, you know, slamming a, a big stick into a, a log, you know, falling on the ground. And somebody else called the cops on him. Like, like I mean, I get, I get the context. You know, they may have not understood what's going on and they just heard some guy yelling in the woods. But, uh, but that's the kind of response, I feel, because it really unnerves people in a culture where generally, you know, they, they want you to be put together. Um, and I think there is a link to this sense that the, if a culture doesn't allow the healthy expression of these things, then they come out sideways in all these other ways, which are yeah, violence, um, abuse, and all the rest. I mean, you know, when I was in graduate school, a very close friend of mine who I've known for years before grad school was almost expelled for doing an exercise involving anger in a group psychotherapy class where everyone is agreed upon, you know, this is about this, it's controlled, we're going to like push and these kinds of things. And the teacher was so afraid and the, some of the other students were so afraid that he was deemed an unsafe person. This is in graduate school wow. for counseling with someone who's committed to that path. And I mean, I think that, yeah, you're right. That's how deep the shadows go, especially for male intensity. That, and understandably, I mean, male intensity and aggression has caused so much of what we experience today as the tragedy and travesty and destruction. And uh, there's a healthy version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it, that there's something around even this contemporary 
um, I don't know, perspective that I feel feminism brings to the equation, which again, on the one hand, a very necessary and um, uh, kind of clear sense that, hey, you know, yeah, violence, abuse, all this stuff, you know, quote, toxic masculinity, all that needs to stop. And at the same time, it feels like there's this over, I don't know what to call it, banishment of the warrior or, or other ways in which there's a certain wildness. And I think that, you know, Bly and them, I believe, like part of their initial, you know, inquiry was into this sense of reclaiming the wild man, right? That's often how it was, how it was understood. And I, I think I was actually talking to uh, Michael Mead later where he, he was saying, well, the wild man actually, it kind of confused people a little bit. One, because wild is typically associated you know, this is an interesting connection though. Wild is typically associated with dangerous, right? And, you know, that could be a whole etymological kind of wondering about why is it that the word wild means dangerous, out of control, right? When um, another way to understand wild probably as in terms of a wild animal is it's actually just being itself. You know, like there's something interesting in that. But uh, he makes the link, I believe, in, in uh, Iron John to the savage man, Right. And, and I would actually say that that's often what people are afraid of, right? That, that, uh, wild equals savagery, savagery and savagery as in that's the wildness, the, the kind of violent, you know, out of controlness. Um, but the wild is actually something else. It's something connected to, yeah, a, a one's own, you know, inner clarity, the, the sensations of being alive, connection to the world as it is. Like I would, I would consider all of that. Yeah, the capacity to express what's actually present, you know, without, you know, blocking it or holding it back, finding the right places for it. I would, I would argue that those are all expressions of a kind of healthy wildness, um, which, again, in the culture at large, that feels lost because it becomes this question of, in a way, like asking men to banish uh, or to outcast that capacity because it seems safer, right? And and I know a lot of men, and me including uh, myself internally banished that side of myself because I saw it as only destructive, only violent, only suspicious, and I would be the good guy. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a good man. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be violent. I'm not going to let myself, you know, become that and hurt others, da, 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 you know, noble. But at the same time, that sets up this inner um, conflict of which I would actually make the case now realizing that a man who isn't in touch with his capacity to express anger uh, and passion in a healthy way is actually dangerous in that they don't know that place in themselves and they don't know when, for example, they're over their own uh, red line, you know, of, of their nervous system and all the rest. And that's when things snap and that's when they become violent. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, one of the honest reasons why I think that I was able to stay in the field of psychology is because I do believe that a lot of the lessons learned there can be generalized to cultural experience, to political experience, to spiritual experience. And a pattern we see all the time is someone who grew up in a family with an abusive or chaotic parent. And so any anything associated that even looks or smells like that, like a raised voice or physical embodiment or whatever it might be, there's some sort of internal vow. I will never do that because it's so scary and uh, I really want to take care of people I care about. And we do that culturally too. I mean, we, patriarchal culture, society, the history of oppression intensity there, it's like growing up with an abusive culture and or like an abusive parent. And so 
we under like the first stage is to distrust anything that remotely looks like it. Um, but it's again one of those reactive ways of um, meeting an energy. It's it's assuming that it's all bad, and those are the assumptions that a child makes. A child that's like scared, they can't tell the difference between you know an energy that's really intense that's like protecting them or scaring them. You know, it's it's all just a lot, um, and so there has to be this way. I love the quote in Iron John where talk, he, Robert Black talks about nice men being life-preserving but not life-giving. And mm. that there's a certain quality of fierceness that has to be online to really be creative. And so I think that that's the question. What truly creates safety? What truly creates safety? Anger is, I think, meant to be a tool. It's one of the most misused energies we have because of our primal brain, our animal self. Um, but no less, uh, it's like a sword. It's meant to be a tool. And if we don't develop right relationship with it, then it becomes used poorly and it does harm. Um, so what creates safety is relationship. It's not ignoring it. Um, and I think that that's one of the fundamental principles that I live by is that what we're missing is relationship in so many ways. And so what creates safety is relationship, not avoidance. Um, or putting it in the shadow, or dismissing. So, um, like I love that David White writing, the very opening line of his chapter on anger is, anger is the deepest form of compassion, or something something like that. It shows us what we really care about. It shows us what's worth defending. Um, and it takes an integrated human to wield that creative force so that it is actually creative and not destructive. So that's our task, mm. is, is how to make those integrated humans. I love that. Yeah, what creates safety is relationship, relationship to those parts. You know, I'm feeling now this, you know, what would it mean to be deeply in relationship to my sadness? What would it mean to be in relationship to my joy? You know, really? Like how often do you, do? I mean, I, how often do I actually see someone really joyfully expressing themselves, actually? And, and you know, that's the irony um, where not only do we tend to repress the deeper, you know, sadness or anger, but we also cut off the capacity to just fully express joy and joy states as if that itself is also, you know, kind of too far out of the zone of, you know, normal, uh, agreeable, you know, human activity. And I, and I really want to say too, in this culture and the say in modern Western culture, because you're absolutely right. You know, I, uh, I was in Cuba, I don't know, a number of years ago happened upon, you know, this uh, group of men. Yeah. Oh yeah. I happened around this group of men there at, you know, just standing on the corner. Uh, and you know, I didn't. I understand a little Spanish, but uh, they they were just ranting at each other. Like, and and you know, if I didn't know any better, I'd be like, "Whoa, this is going to break out in a fist fight!" Like, um, and, I, and then I realized later, somebody else translated for me. They were arguing about the latest soccer game, uh, or the you know the football match, and awesome. At, and at the same time, it was not like it's almost like they they the arguing was the fun like how they were, you know, making the case and the other was like refuting them. And, and you could tell like that the passion was just the lifeblood, you know, of, of their relationship and how that in fact, actually probably you can make the case based on also what you're saying that actually creates more safety than keeping it repressed, keeping it, you know, under the lid and having it come out in all these other ways. I do have another question though, too, because I am thinking about how maybe more broadly in the you know 60s 70s the the this kind of thing um this this need to express felt like it started coming online in the culture at large and there's you know maybe classic footage of you know somebody beating up a pillow and and you know screaming in groups and this kind of stuff um and one way i understand it is 
uh, as a catharsis. Um, this idea that you know you just gotta just gotta get it out and. And somehow I feel like there's a nuance here that I really want to maybe take a moment to to speak to if you, you know, because totally right. because I do feel there's something different between simply, you know, any moment, you know, you could just rah, rant it out and get, you know, oh, but there's something else in what we're talking about, I think, which, you know, this tapping into the soul, what does the soul need in order to, um, to, to release uh, or to gain the insight from an experience that was traumatic or whatever it is, you know, I just feel there's something in this that it's not just catharsis, and, and I'd love to hear if there's language or, or an understanding around that for you. Yeah, maybe I'll start out on the practical pieces and then slide into the abstract. The, yeah, it's different than catharsis. Catharsis is just a part. It's a, it's a step. And part of catharsis is like a little bit of a pressure relief valve, Um it's to it makes people be experiential and expressive beings again, um, and that's important. So, getting someone to be cathartic is to encourage them towards expressiveness. So, it's getting them aware that these energies exist within them, and getting them somewhat comfortable within them. And that's part of integration. That's part of learning. You know, it's not just go beat the shit out of a foam cube in your garage, which I'm four and I think would be great if more people did it. And it's just a step and it's just uh, part of the whole thing. The idea is to be able, one is just raw movement. You know, a lot of things in the men's work, we say like express, don't explain. Men always want to explain <laughs> shit. And it's like, just, yeah, just express, good. just put the energy online in, um, and people will try to use explanation and telling the story to avoid being actually expressive. They want you to infer what their experience is instead of expressing it. So um, part of it's getting people comfortable with the energy. Part of it's getting people aware of it. Part of it's getting expressiveness to be a part of the personality again. But then it moves to doing that in a relationship. Like, can you part of it's like, can you defend your boundaries? Do you know what you, you are willing and not willing to do? Do you know what you really need? Do you know how you're not being met in that way? So it's like a whole... Uh, process of self-inquiry and awareness and putting that into the personality in a new way. It's not just the pillow beating, which is great. And like for someone who's been so repressed, that's a step, but it's not over um, any more than, you know, if you have really pressing things in your life that, that need to be resolved, like going on a run can help, you know, talking to a friend can help, but it's meant to be a part of a larger process. What has been helpful for you in terms of integrating then these pieces? Like what what maps or what um, you know what terrain of the psyche has been helpful then in in I suppose coming to terms with you know how do how does one become a whole self within a culture itself which is deeply fragmented? You know, like what's the what's the relationship between these two things now as you've you know been in the practice for a number of years and stepped into different communities like Sacred Sons to you know offer to them and. And I'm curious again, how are you holding these pieces? Create a subculture. Create a subculture. Like I encourage everyone I work with to get together with people in their community regularly and go to these places with them. Um, maybe that's reading a book together. Maybe that's just getting together and doing some of these bigger energetic pieces. Maybe that's collectively grieving. Maybe that's doing something more ritual together. Um, maybe just having a blast and having a great time. I don't know what it is, but it's, you have to take a creative participatory role. You don't, it, it, 
don't just suffer there alone. Um, and I mean, even if it means coming together around the suffering that you have, there has to be subcultures and people forming uh, these relationships and these networks. And, and that can take a million forms. Um, but that's like the main thing I would say is uh, creating a subculture, like just getting, if, and that's as simple sometimes as getting six or seven of your friends together and meeting every two weeks. And then how does that subculture interface with the culture at large? Like, do you see, I mean, like, what is that encounter like? You know, so because it's almost like if you change yourself and like you do become more expressive, you do become more online, you do tap more into your sadness, all of a sudden you look out at the world and you're like, oh, damn, like I can't numb out anymore. You know, and now it's like you're either forced to numb out again, you know, to, to get by or there's a confrontation that that seems to happen you know, where you're actually challenged to engage now with the systems of oppression or engage with, you know, dysfunction within your family line or whatever that happens to be. I mean, I think the thing there for me is I have to have a container of meaning to hold me when I get in there. Yeah, I get put online and then I start to notice everything and then it becomes so intense to just navigate. And I have to have some context of meaning and for me personally, that comes from a number of places, but one of them is, you know, I, I experience it as a form of activism that living this way and being this way and to the best of my ability is a form of resistance and, and creation at the same time. And, and that helps me with the soul weariness and the weight of it. Um, but I think, yeah, that'll I'll be a unique thing to each person is once you get turned on in that way and can see in that way, then everything becomes very intense and people have to find their own ways of, of bearing that existential weight. And I think it's going to be different for each person. Turning now to this, you know, current moment, you know, as we're recording this, it is uh, close to the end of May and, you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus and all this, you know, we're, we're sort of in this stage where some, it seems like largely a lot of the States are, are opening up to, in some degree. Um, and at the same time, there's huge uncertainty around whether that or not that's a good idea and da da da. Um, and as we heard from you at the beginning of the call, you were feeling this deep, uh, this deep sense that you had to go into uh, a cocoon, or at least that's my my yeah. take on it. Yeah, accurate. And, yeah, and I'd be curious to know again, where is that longing coming from you uh, as you look out and maybe see of the you know the level of uncertainty and fear, and how is it uh, landing in you? that your act of responsiveness now seems to be to step into this, uh, this chamber of uncertainty. I'm not sure exactly what this is about as far as this call and this calling, but like, I don't know if I would experience this call if I, if COVID wasn't going on, but there's something that's guided me in my life since I was a teenager it's a very instinctive and instinctual pull, much like a hibernation instinct or something like that. Like I can't explain it or like going into a coon. Like why the heck am I building this thing and going to mush? I don't know. I don't know what's on the other side. Uh, but it's something that I have to trust and follow. And I really want to know things ahead of time. And I think it's part of just my own learning to not know uh, because it makes me be, be more devoted to the act of being present and of uh, paying attention. 
if I do know certain things, then I probably stop paying attention as well, and I probably stop asking the questions with as much sincerity. And so I think there's something about just going into this cocoon to listen. Um, and I think to some degree, you know, I haven't really fully proved it yet, but I, I think it's part of my role as a human to, in times of cultural group crisis or personal, to go and seek some counsel from the mythic side of life and to see if I can come back with something worth living into. And, um, and that, that feels like the pull right now. There's a phrase, I think it comes from neuro-linguistic programming or some such thing where it says, uh, you know, this, this label of a limiting belief. And maybe you're familiar with it or not. Um, I'm, I'm cursorily familiar with it. But, you know, I was thinking about this idea of, you know, of a limiting belief. And it's usually trotted out in psychological terms, I think, as, you know, a belief about oneself around, you know, what they can or can't do. Um, which it can be related to, again, life experience and, and conditioning and all the rest, sure. And so I get the spirit of what they typically say, you know, you got to blast through that limiting belief, you know, to like get to your full potential. And there's some other um, relationship, though, to this word limit. And I, I caught this relationship between liminal and limit, right? Which I'm sure must share some kind of origin. Uh, uh, liminal sort of, you know, I understand, you know, just below, uh, or just like the threshold, and then limit as um, sort of a, a boundary of what's known. You know, maybe that's one way to think of it. Limit as coming to the boundary of what's known. Uh, and perhaps there's something actually, you know, as soon as you take it out of psychological terms only, and and this idea that, oh, well, you know, the consequence of of limit only accrues to you personally, right? Like, um, you know, I'm limiting my full potential, so I gotta I got to blast through and do it. But as soon as you embed yourself in a wider, um, you know, mythological, biological, ecological uh, relationship, suddenly, you know, your ability to prevail at, at all costs has consequence. And, you know, maybe I say this even in, in the human endeavor that, you know, the fact that almost no flying is happening right now um, is, you know, having a huge effect, of course, on the natural world and, of course, the air quality and all the rest. And I've just been really with this question of, you know, should we be flying, actually? You know, like, and again, I deliberately constructed that way because is is the goddess of limit, which is a phrase Martin Shaw used, is is she trying to have her way with us right now? You know, and I so I hear that in what you're saying, which is, you know, on the one hand, your best ideas about what you thought, you know, would be useful to do and, and the most healing and the most impact was to do, you know, retreats and to, um, you know, to be out there in the field. And yet, now that the goddess of limit has shown up, you know, on your doorstep and, and the doorstep of many of us, suddenly, you know, your sense of what's needed has shifted. And what I want to say is I, I want to hold that up actually as a real achievement, um, the willingness to not see limit as a grievance, you know, or something, hey, you know, this is getting in the way, but actually your, I believe it's your capacity to actually tap into the wild or what the wild may tr be trying to communicate and the willingness to to adhere to it, you know, to this place of deep listening, which I think is actually a really great reflection of the the capacity and and the work that you've done, you know, for yourself to receive it that way. Whereas so many, again, receive it as, you know, uh, this is getting in the way of my you know ability to be everything or do anything that I want, you know, which is which is a very adolescent 
uh, relationship, I think, to to limit. And so anyway, I just wanted to uphold that because I feel like there is an invitation, and I continually am trying to do this myself, is um, to to return again to, you know, what what does this time ask of us and what is worth doing? And maybe what is worth not doing is the real question. And maybe I'd love to leave it to you to finish, you know, finish this with uh, any further thoughts before we say goodbye for today. I love, can I, I might just tell a short story. Uh, there's a, a brain researcher that I really like named Joseph Chilton Pierce, who's uh, also on a spiritual path. And although he turned out to be wrong about the um, scientific side of this, I think it captures something true. He, it was during that time period where we believe we only used at the most 5% of our brains. And he had this lecture about the difference between intellect and intelligence. And he used the, he, he just made them into words that had more meaning for his talk. And in his talk, he said that an intellect was really just the capacity to do. It's like, it, it, it just, it asks like, can I do this? And that's all it asks. And it's very driven to figure out what it can do. And intelligence has a much more expanded understanding of relationship. And so it asks, you know, should I do this? Is this really in service of the greater whole? And so by his definition, and as the story goes, um, he believed that, uh, our, that, that basically we couldn't access the greater capacities of our brain uh, because what would we do with that, with the intelligence that we had? Look at what we've already done to the planet with what we can do. If we had 100% access, what would we do? Um, I had a professor in college that proposed that question. If we had free, clean uh, energy, unlimited energy source, cold fusion, what would we do with that? And I was like, I, I don't want that. I don't want that. Like we would create a crazy world. And, um, and so his basic belief where his spiritual side came in, it was he believed that we were trying to wake up this intelligence of the heart to guide our brain's capacity. And that it was like an evolutionary fail-safe, that we weren't allowed to access enough of our brain capacity until we had a real deep understanding of relationship and the greater context of all beings and what the implications of our choices were. And I, it does seem like he was wrong about uh, the actual you know percentage of the brain we use, but archetypally, I think there's truth in that of before we do things, it takes a certain amount of understanding and experience and participation and relationship to act well and to use our creative energy that's somehow in alignment with a greater whole that we exist in. And so I love that question about what uh, we should do and should not do and if there's value in holding both. Because I think that if we really hold that, it teaches us more about a relationship in this greater intelligence um, and kind of alignment that we can be in uh, with that side of life and how we've gotten out of alignment with it. And so I definitely am in, in that same inquiry and do think that we need to uh, be in that process of like, what are we doing with our creative power? How can it be more in alignment with something um, that's sustainable, that's deeply life-giving in the long, long run. Um, stop asking just, can we do this? But should we do this? And how come? I think that is an archetypal journey of the human to taking creative power more and more into our hands. And what choices do we do with it? And 
so much of history is written by the choices that have been incredibly life-giving and beautiful and also deeply tragic. Um, picking up that sword, that tool, uh, can have great consequence or it can t give life. And so um, going into some sort of state, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever that is, mythically, to ask what we're making with those tools and are we doing right by ourselves and by that, that part of life with our creative energy. I love that. And, you know, it really brings back this uh, connection to, I believe, this the healing of trauma in the capacity to actually be in relationship to all parts of ourselves. You know, maybe I'll just speak, you know, myself and uh, for men to come back to in relationship to all these places, I think will actually give us the capacity to listen deeper, to, you know, wield the sort of discernment much more clearly, not acting out from these unconscious wounds, but actually from a deep relationship to, to ourselves and the rest of life. And then I think from that relationship, the capacity to know what is worth doing, what is life serving, I think will be uh, much more clear. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Well, blessings on your journey into the cocoon, Michael. Thank you so much, Ian. Appreciate it. It's good to speak with you today. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you. <laughs>